Wonderful. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1. So while you're finding your way there, just want to uh, update you a little bit on some Morris family news. Uh, unfortunately, we have someone in our family who's rather unwell at the minute. Um, when, when Steph and I got married, she inherited, along with me, she inherited two geckos. Uh, one of them called Silky Bob, he's a leopard gecko, and one of them called Stevie, he's a crested gecko. And over the last uh, couple of weeks we've been having to, to, to treat Silky Bob because he's really not very well. He um, took him to the vet, he hadn't been eating, very lethargic, uh, his tummy was just full of fluid. And the, doc, uh, the doctor, I didn't take him to the doctor, I took him to the vet and uh, the vet seems to think that he's got something uh, called fatty liver disease, so his liver's not functioning properly uh, and by the sounds of it, uh, it he's like leaking protein in, into his body, it's just not too good. Uh, but there's uh, been some things that we've been able to do at home in terms of treatment uh, that, that we've been doing for him and he, uh, he starts his day now with a bath, uh, 20 minutes every morning with a bath. Uh, and then I have to syringe feed him some food after that, so get some medication into him and making sure he's getting some food. So he has that at the start of the day, and then he has it at the end of the day as well. So another 20-minute bath and another syringe full of food. Um, but we're, we're really hoping that he's going to come through it. it. I know it's, you know how people are with their pets, even though he's a, a reptile, I'm still very fond of him. Uh, and, and we, you know, me and Steph, we really want really him to pull through. We're hopeful... We've, we have hope that he's going to make it, but actually, I never thought that I would start my day by bathing, bathing a reptile. Never did I think that's how my life would look. But the reality is, is that I'm hoping he'll pull through, and because I'm hoping he'll make it, it's brought in changes to my lifestyle. There's something that's changed, because I want to see something happen. Now, this is hope on a fairly small scale. The reality is, whether he makes it or not, is not going to have, no offence, Silky Bob, but it's not going to have the biggest effect or impact on our lives. But what about when your hope is set on something that will absolutely change your life? Many of you will know, if you've been around for a while, I'm a big fan of American sports. I do quite a lot of reading around it, follow a lot of guys on Twitter and social media. And there's a fairly common story that seems to come up from time to time of guys who have grown up in fairly uh, impoverished backgrounds and circumstances, difficult childhoods. And they would, nearly all of them would pinpoint their key to succeeding and their key to getting or escaping from poverty as being their education. They've given everything they could. They were determined to stay through school, get through college, get through university and make it to professional sports. But for them to escape poverty, they had set their hope on their education. What about if you were looking to escape loneliness? You might set your hope on someone to share your life with. Someone to share things with. Or what if you were looking to escape war? You would set your hope on finding safety and a place in another region or in another nation. And the reality is, is that we, we will all set our hope somewhere, either on something or on someone. We all will. It's part of the human need, part of the human nature. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because last week uh, we had Steve Dunn with us from Herne Bay, Steve and his wife Jenny. It was wonderful to have them with us. I think Steve served us amazingly well with the word that he brought. And he was speaking about hope. And it was based on uh, 1 Peter 1, as he's continuing through the series that we've started that we've called Exiles. 
And 1 Peter is, is a letter that was written to a number of churches in what we would now know as modern-day Turkey. And we were, we were looking at it a couple of weeks ago in particular and saying, actually, this was a letter written to the early church, but it's a letter written to us now as well. Because the situation they found themselves in, in terms of uh, there being confrontation with the world around them, kind of living in societies that were fairly hostile and, and opposing what, what they were believing as individuals and as a church is very similar to the world in which we live in now, where the church is almost being pushed to the side, being marginalised, and, and Christianity and its values are seen as fairly unimportant. So that's why we're working through this letter, looking at what Peter was writing to the church then, and looking to encourage us now, uh, and looking to, uh, to, to bring in some instruction for us in how we're to live. Now this morning... The passage we're going to be looking at, Peter addresses how the followers of Jesus are meant to live, about their lifestyle and about their behaviour. But this isn't where he started. made a point over the first couple of weeks of saying, actually, Peter, he starts by laying a foundation of who followers of Jesus are, about their identity and their position. We're picking up 13 verses in. So there's been 12 verses before that have been solely focusing on the Christian's identity and position, because that is where we need to start. Before we can look at how our lifestyle is meant to be, what our behaviour is meant to be like, we need to know who we are. So in week one, uh, Peter was was just letting us know that we are God's elect exiles. What that means is that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen by God and we were called to be a part of his people. We've been set apart by the Holy Spirit, been set apart for obedience to Jesus. And it's in Jesus where our forgiveness is found. And last week... Uh, When Steve was talking to us about this hope, he was speaking about an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is being kept in heaven for us. There's an inheritance waiting in heaven for us. But we have a living hope. It's not just about, not just, it's not solely about an inheritance that's to to be received in a time to come. Actually, Steve was saying how this living hope, this salvation is all encompassing. He talked about it in three dimensions. If you were here, if you remember that, about three dimensions. He's saying we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. Our hope is not solely on something that's going to happen in the future. We live in the fullness and the goodness of it right now. So having laid this foundation uh, of the identity and position of, of believers and followers of Jesus, Peter now calls believers to live in a certain way. There's an expectation about the lifestyle and behavior of those who would identify themselves with Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So 1 Peter 1, we're going to pick up from verse 13. Uh, I think it's coming up on the screen or you can share your Bibles with one another. So it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
So this passage that we just read, it starts with the word therefore, which means that it's, uh, it's directly relating to what has come beforehand. So what, Paul, uh, Paul, what Peter's going to go on to say in terms of instructions for the church, in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of this call to live a, a holy life, has to come out of the foundations which he set before. It has to come out of the hope which believers have in Jesus Christ. He's saying, in light of what you've heard, because of who you are, because you have an all-encompassing living hope, because of that, live holy lives. Live godly lives. But it has to come out of the truths which Peter has laid the foundations of uh, in, in the passages before. You see, there's a correlation between where our hope is set and how we live. And Paul, uh, keeps saying Paul Peter really emphasises this. He uses a tool uh, which I read about, I learned about this week. It's called a, a literary envelope. It could be described as a literary envelope. What that means, in verse 13, so the first verse we read, and in verse 21, the last verse we read, he speaks about hope. He starts with hope and he finishes with hope. And the call to this lifestyle, the call to this holiness is completely enveloped in hope. It's a very deliberate thing that he does. He starts with hope. This is the way that you therefore are meant to live. And he rounds it off in closing it in hope. That is the place where we start from. You see, what we hope in determines how we will live now. What we hope in determines how we will live now. And likewise, how we live now demonstrates what we really hope in. Do you know that your life is a demonstration of where your hope is? I think it's worth a worthwhile question for us to ask from time to time. What does your life demonstrate about where your hope truly is? It's a good question to ask. What does your life demonstrate about where your hope truly is? I've got to go back to Silky Bob. I have to say, we hope he's going to pull through. We hope he's going to make it. Signs are good. He's doing well. The vet is very pleased so far, but we're pressing through. But the truth is, the hope that I have is very much a, I'm just hoping for the best. I don't actually know what's going to happen. The reality of it is, is that even having given him all these baths and given him all this food, he could still die. Nothing is certain and nothing is guaranteed. And also, the outcome is very much dependent on my response, on what I'm going to do whether I'm going to persevere and press on and, and do these things that the vet has asked me to. But the hope that Peter speaks of, this hope that envelops the call to be holy, this hope is the absolute certainty of God. This hope is the absolute certainty of his promises to us in Christ. It's not a hoping for the best. It's something that has been secured for us. It is not up for question. And also being holy is not a means to achieving God's promises. It's not a means to an end. What it is, is a response to God. It's a response to God for who he is and for the fact that he has already saved us through his son Jesus and that he's given us an inheritance that is going to be fully realised when Jesus returns. That's what it is. This call to holy living is a response to who God is and for what he's done for us. It's not about earning anything. Hope shouldn't lead to passivity. Just because our hope is secure, we know that we've got an inheritance waiting for us, doesn't just mean we just lay back, enjoy the ride and wait and see what happens. Actually, what hope should do is hope should stir us into action. Hope should inspire us. Hope should encourage us. Because God has done so much for us, therefore we must now be willing and prepared to take action for him. We must be willing and prepared to take action for him.
Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Uh, 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 that literally means gird up the loins of your mind. And what Peter's doing is he's using this picture of, uh, of it in, when he was writing. Uh, it would have been a situation where if someone was preparing themselves to run or for exercise or activity, they would have pulled up their robes and they would have either tied them around their waist or kind of tucked them into a belt to enable them to be ready to, to get moving, to be able to get going. And that's what he's saying. He's saying... In, Using that picture, using that illustration, he's saying, be like that with your mind. Prepare your mind so that you are ready for action. You are ready to exercise your mind. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's a a commentary I've been reading called One Peter for You by a guy named, named Juan Sanchez. And he says that setting your hope fully on God, it requires mental preparation and resolve. Setting your hope fully on the grace to come is an act of faith that requires renewed thinking. It requires disciplined thinking. So it's not passive. We don't sit and wait and hope. We are disciplined in our minds. We are renewed in our thinking. See, when we submit to Jesus and follow him, we don't leave our minds at the door. We don't just switch our minds off. You see, our minds play a vital role in living out our salvation. Romans 12 verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Nothing in that is passive, is it? It's all about, to be transformed we need to renew our minds. There's a process of testing and discernment. Working out what is of God, working out what is good. Identifying what is acceptable and what is perfect. You see, we need to be ready to see God work. And when we see God work and we can see what is godly and what is good and what is acceptable, we need to respond with obedience to that. But there's a process of being alert and intentional about that. Peter says to be sober. Often when we're talking about sober, it's in contrast to to drunkenness or being intoxicated. If someone's drunk or intoxicated, their, their judgment is clouded. Their reflexes are slowed. Uh, and, and fairly often it can provoke them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. That's what drunkenness does. But Peter's saying, actually, we're not to be like that. In our thinking, we're to be sober-minded. We're to be self-controlled. We're to be self-disciplined. Because disciplined thinking controls right behavior. It flows out of it. Right thinking, disciplined thinking, leads to right behavior. So do not get intoxicated on the things of this world, but rather be clear-sighted about who God is and all that he gives. Focus in on him. Disciplined, self-controlled thinking with minds that are prepared for action will impact how we relate to the world, it will impact how we relate to God, and it will impact how we relate to one another as Christians. Peter calls us to be holy. We're going to go through this in a moment. But as he calls us to be holy and what that looks like, he also gives us reasons or motivations as to why we must be holy. So we're going to look at three motivations or three reasons why we must be holy. Uh, I've taken the headings of these from another commentary by a guy named Michael Eaton. And the first reason why we must be holy is because of the character of God. Okay, so the character of God. Now... As Eva's growing up, I'm realising more and more that she picks up a lot from observing me and Steph. 
I'm a, I'm a lot more aware of what I do and what I say. Uh, and it seems like every week or so, she just seems to pick something up. Uh, and then it becomes the, the one thing that she just constantly does as she's practicing it. The thing at the moment now is something falls or gets dropped on the floor, you just hear her going, uh-oh, or oh no. And it is actually really sweet, but we're only like a week or two into that, I'm sure. Given time, it might not be so. But she's picking things up from being around me and Steph, from observing us. She's learning from us. Not only that, from the moment that she was born, everyone has said that she looks like Steph. And it's absolutely true. She does look a lot like Steph. But people have also said, while she may look like Steph, she has a lot of the same expressions as me. Uh, fairly often, though, when people say that to me, they'll say something like, oh, even pulled a face over you. It really remind, reminded me of you. And I was like, oh, what kind of face was it? More often than not, she was being grumpy or, <laughs> or a stern face. I think someone even said, it's your telling off face. And I didn't even know I had one of those. Uh, but there are characteristics and there's a likeness that Eva has from, from me and Steph because there's a family likeness that carries through. That's the way it is with all families. There's a family likeness and characteristics that pass through. You see, in Jesus, our identity has changed. We are now children of God. That's how Peter addresses us. He says, as obedient children of God, our identity has gone from being enemies of God to being children of God. And as such, we bear the likeness of our Father. It's a principle, yes, we see it in, in our families now, but that's a principle, it's a spiritual principle as well, that we carry the likeness, of the family likeness of God. And our Father is holy. Because our Father is holy, therefore we are to be holy also. It's a family characteristic. And Peter, he makes reference to the Old Testament. Uh, in Leviticus 11.44, God is addressing the nation of Israel. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That was God's intention for his people. Because he is holy, his people too are meant to be holy. To say that God is holy means that he is separated from sin. To be holy means to be separated from sin. And he is also devoted to seeking his own honour. Everything that God does is for his own name and for his glory. That's what it means when we talk about God being holy. When something is consecrated, it is dedicated to God for his service. So when God is saying to his people, consecrate yourselves, he's saying, actually, um, dedicate yourselves to my service. Things that are holy are set apart from ordinary or evil use and devoted to use in glorifying God. So this call to live a holy life is a call uh, to be dedicated to God's service. It means to be devoted to glorifying God through everything that we are, through everything that we do, through our actions, through our thoughts, through our words, through the way that we live, to bring glory to God, to point people to him and to bring him the glory that he deserves. So the passage I read from Leviticus, that, that verse I read from Leviticus, that was God speaking to the nation of Israel, the nation that he chose, that he decided that he wanted them for himself, that he would be their God, they would be his people. And they were to be separate from all of the other nations, that they were to serve him and him alone. They weren't to be like the other nations that would serve all of their other, uh, many other gods and, and worship many other idols. They were to serve him and him alone. They were to be distinguishable from the surrounding nations. There was meant to be something different about them. Something different about the, about the way that they lived. And actually, 
what God established with them uh, was a covenant. He would be their God. They would be his people. Uh, but they, there would be a list of kind of uh, requirements that they were to observe. Things that would distinguish them from the other nations in terms of their diet, in terms of their relationships, the way that they were to worship, and many other ways that would set them apart and distinguish them. They were set apart from the world to worship God alone. But remember, Peter is writing to the elect exiles, those that have been chosen by the Father, those that have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, those that have been set apart from the world to serve God alone. Those of us here who are followers of Jesus, you were chosen by the Father, been set apart to serve Him, to bring Him glory, to be distinguishable from the world in which we live. That's what it is to live holy lives. Formerly we were ignorant, in that we were ignorant of God, we were ignorant of His ways. We didn't know any better, essentially. But we were driven by passions and desires rather than by obedience to God. What followers of Jesus are called to now is obedience to him rather than being driven by passions and desires because that is the way of the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why the world and the church clash in the way that they do. Because while we're seeking to be obedient to Jesus, before that, the way that the world is is that people... We were all driven by our passions and desires, looking for things that would bring pleasure, uh, looking for things that we could worship. But we're to be like our Father, because we're obedient children. We're not to be like the world for the simple reason that we no longer belong to the world. We belong to God, so we need to be like Him, as obedient children. Israel, they revealed to whom they were dedicated through their conduct. That was their demonstration to the world around them. And actually, it was, uh, it, the way that they were living was also pleasing to God because it was the way that he had established and called them to live. By obeying everything that Jesus commands, we too display our identity as children of God. I think it's important at this point to say that this isn't some, living a holy and godly life isn't something that we can do just by trying harder or just by putting in more effort. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. We have to be those that are led by the Holy Spirit, that allow the Holy Spirit to come and shape us. I think a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how it's the Holy Spirit who sets us apart, there was also an ongoing process where the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus. That's what holy living is like. It's being like Jesus. It's living the way that Jesus lived. It's displaying the characteristics and nature that Jesus did and it's the Holy Spirit that that enables us to do that. We can't live holy lives without him. We are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to help us through. So I just want to establish that now. This is not about trying harder. This is not just about setting rules and regulations and routines into your life. Sometimes those are, are helpful to have good routines and patterns in your life. But it's got to be the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do that and who makes us more and more like Jesus. So we're to be holy in all your conduct. It's a small word, all, but it's got huge implications. Be holy in all your conduct. It's not just the things that people are going to see. It's not just when you're out and about. It's not when you're at church or at work. It's not when, even when you're with your family or your friends. We're to be holy in all of our conduct. That means when no one else is around as well. It means when no one is watching. 
It means when there's no CCTV to spot what, you, to spot what you're doing, we're to be holy in all of our conduct. There's a guy named John Wooden. I, I think this is a, an amazing quote. He says, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. That is the true test of someone's character because that will really reflect what is within us. It will show itself when no one else is watching. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. But it's helpful for us to, to remember that. We're to be holy in all our conduct, whether we know people are watching or whether it's just us. So our first motivation to be holy is because of the character of God. Because God is holy, we too are to be holy. Because we are his obedient people. Secondly, the second motivation is the impartial judgment of God. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to head there in just a moment. Uh, so with, with our geckos, with Silky Bob, with all reptiles, reptiles are, are wild animals, to have them as pets, to a certain extent you can tame them uh, to the point where it's possible to handle them and they're kind of accepting of that and they, they can seem to enjoy that sort of interaction. We got to a point where actually we were able to get Silky Bob out and he can have a run around and a play and it's not, no problem. He's fairly tame in that respect. And they do a lot of breeding with reptiles, but fairly often it's to get different colours and different patterns and that sort of thing. But it's not to the extent where you can change the behaviour, kind of the inherited behaviour. Not with reptiles, they're, they're wild animals. But this type of breeding has been taken further with some species through what we've known as domestication. And domestication is the process of adapting wild animals for human use. Uh, an example of that we would see is uh, dogs, dogs that we have now would have originally come from wolves. There was a process of domestication uh, where they had been adapted for human use. Domestic species are raised for food, work, clothing, medicine, for many other uses, but they must be raised and cared for by humans. This is a process that happens over generations, and what, what happens is that undesirable characteristics and, tra and traits are removed to make them more manageable and to suit the needs of humans. That's why it was done. It was to suit the needs of people. So we got rid of the characteristics that were undesirable. We got rid of, the, rid of their wild nature and the things uh, that made them difficult to handle and difficult for us to manage. And we've made them more manageable in order to suit our needs. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because we can run the risk of having a domesticated view of God. Where rather than understanding God as he has revealed himself, we create a God that we can manage. It's something we need to be aware of. We can do that. We can ignore or sideline the characteristics or part, parts of God's nature that we are comfortable with or would rather not have to engage with. And we can end up with this domesticated view of God. And we can end up shaping him and making him in the image that we want God to be because it's more comfortable, because it's more manageable, because it meets the need that I feel that I have. But that's a very, very dangerous place to be. My observation is that many Christians today I think they speak often of the love of God, but not very much about the fear of God. The love of God is absolutely fundamental. It is good and it is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he rescued men and women and children and saved them. So the love of God, hugely important hugely important but to exclude the fear of God means we can end up creating a God in our own image make him more manageable 
means I, can, I feel I can engage with him on a more comfortable level. I don't want to have to deal with the thought of having to fear God. But the concept of fear of God is common throughout Scripture. It's common throughout the Old Testament, but it's not just an Old Testament idea. It runs throughout the whole of Scripture, leading up to Jesus. And actually, from the time that Jesus was and when he went back to be with the Father, the concept of the fear of God is a common thing. So we need to know what the fear of God really is. The fear of the Lord is knowing that God, our Father, is also the judge of the world. It's a fairly simple way of looking at it. The fear of of the Lord is knowing that God, our Father God, is also the judge of the world. Romans 14 verse 12 says that each of us will give an account of himself to God. So there'll be a day, commonly referred to as judgment day, where all of us, everyone, will stand before God and give an account for the way that they've lived their lives. They'll give an account for their conduct. This is not a judgment about your faith, about whether or not you are saved. Need to make that point very clear. Steve last week said, Once you're saved, you're saved. And I absolutely agree with him on that. That would be the position that we would take as a church. Once saved, you are saved. So this judgment is not a judgment about whether or not you are saved, but it's an evaluation, it's a judgment of of our conduct. Your deeds matter because your deeds will be the basis of your judgment. Know that. One day you'll stand before God. Yes, you'll be saved. Yes, you'll be secure. Yes, your inheritance will be there. But you will still have to give an account for what you've done. You will still have to give an account for the way that you've lived. You see, to fear God is not a fear of eternal punishment. It's not a fear of lost salvation. But it's a fear that in some way you will be repaid for how you've lived. That's how it's going to be. And it's a right fear to have. Because God is the God who judges. But he is the God who judges justly. He is not unfair in that he is just Hebrews 12 asked you to go there so let's pick that up Hebrews 12 starting at verse 5 says my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have, all have participate, participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So yes, there's a day where we're going to be judged for our deeds, but there's also an ongoing discipline through our daily walks with God. That's what parents do. There's a role there of of discipline. But as we've just read in Hebrews, it's for our own good, because that is what loving fathers do. When I was living at home with my parents... Would I presume that if I was disobedient, it would pass unnoticed or or unpunished? Not a chance. Because that's part of what parenting is. You love your children, but also there's a time where they need to be disciplined. They need to be corrected in their behaviour. It's what responsible parenting is. But just because we're God's children 
doesn't mean that we can expect him to show any favoritism. He is impartial. He judges things as they truly are. There's no bias. There's no favoritism there. I mentioned earlier that it was because of God's love for us that he sent Jesus to save us. Sanchez, who I mentioned earlier, he says that he is a saving God because he is a judging God. He can be a saving God because he is the ruling God. We will not enjoy living with the love of God unless we also live with the right fear of God. We need to get a good understanding of the two because they go together. The reason that we are saved is because God uh, is a God who judges. And because the punishment that needed to be paid has been poured out of Jesus, there was a judgment that was made. And it's because our God is a judging judging God that we were able to be saved in the first place. Yes, it was the love of God, but it's also the judgment of God there as well. And these two need to go together. So we need to enjoy living with the love of God, but also with the right fear of God. And Peter's saying, actually, to live with a a healthy fear of God is a really, is a great motivation in terms of holy living. Because we know we're going to stand before him one day, give an account of what we've done, but there's also an ongoing discipline as well. I don't want to do things that I know are displeasing to my father. I don't want to face discipline from my father. That's not how I want, to, how I want that relationship to be. How much more do I want that to be the case with my heavenly father? So finally, third and finally, so we'll just get through, get through this one. The, the final motivation for being holy is the blood of Jesus. So paying a ransom, it was used in the context of purchasing freedom for a slave or a hostage who was being held as an enemy. Romans 6 tells us that we were all slaves to sin and that being slaves to sin leads to death. We're slaves to the futile ways and the patterns of life that were empty, worthless, that had no meaningful or lasting results. We were slaves to the futile ways of generations that had been before of traditions, of beliefs, and of ways, ways of life. Sometimes that would have been things that we would have uh, inherited from our, from, our, uh, from, the, from our families, from the generations that have been before, ways that we'd been brought up, belief systems that we'd been brought up in. But we were held in slavery and captivity, and there was a ransom that needed to be paid. And it was a ransom that, would, that was paid. See, God has taken us out of the old life and placed us in the new life. It's not just that we've been separated from it, it's that we've been taken out of it. We've been taken out of slavery and placed into a new life. But we were bought at a price. I don't know if you've ever seen how gold is is mined. Uh, I've seen bits of it on TV and the conditions there look absolutely brutal. Uh, It's a very, very dangerous job. Uh, very, very dangerous job. And what Peter does in this passage, he takes the most precious and enduring metals, takes silver and gold, those materials that people would risk their lives to gather. People literally would risk their lives for, and he calls them perishable. He says silver and gold, they're perishable. They will perish, they will decay, because they belong to this world. They will not go on. They will not endure. But he says, we have not been ransomed, we've not been bought back with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, 
before Jesus was born, sacrifices were made. Uh, they would take often a, a lamb that was spotless, uh, without blemish, as a symbol of purity. And they would sacrifice it, and the blood would cover the sins of the people. That was the way that the sacrificial system worked. But then Jesus, who is holy and perfect, sinless and spotless, he shed his blood on a cross to pay the ransom price to take us out of slavery so that we were no longer slaves to the futile ways of the world. We were no longer slaves to the things that we would have inherited from our families, from the, uh, from the ways of living, from the belief systems there. And his sacrifice, his blood will not perish or decay or fade away. It is secured for us an eternal inheritance. And know this as well. Our salvation was no afterthought. Our salvation was no afterthought. It wasn't that God looked at the world, saw it had gone wrong, saw that it had gone rogue, and thought, actually, I need to have a reaction to this. I need to do something in response to this. That's not how it came about. See, God's salvation plan, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Which means that the Father not only foreknew the people who he would elect, he also foreknew the means by which he would save them. So before anything was created, before anything came into being, God knew who he was going to choose to be his people. Not only that, he knew his rescue plan for people. That is absolutely astounding. It was no afterthought. God knew. He foreknew exactly what it would cost to have these chosen people called to himself. He knew the means by which he would save them, that it would be through Jesus. So let's draw this to a close. So just for this final bit, then we need to be motivated to holiness because we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer bound to it. We're not of that life anymore. Be motivated to holiness by understanding what it cost for you to be ransomed. There was a price that was paid. I think what I'm trying to say here is don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. Don't cheapen what it cost for you to be ransomed. Be motivated by gratitude. What a great reason to live a holy life because we are so grateful for what God has done for us. Be motivated by the gospel. Be motivated by the good news, the good news that we all have. Ruth, would you and the band like to come up? Just as, as the band are getting ready, I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to hand over to the team. They're going to lead us back into our time of worship.